We're going to come out of the EU on October the 31st. No ifs or buts. But we've just lost four elections in a row. We've got a mountain to climb. You cannot hold Scotland in the Union against its will. This advice is not a request. It is an instruction. Stay at home, protect lives. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You stay, can you stay categorical? You are fake news, sir. Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. This time we're talking about matters across the pond. It's a big year for politics in America. The presidential election takes place in November and the Black Lives Matter protests and the coronavirus are both likely to play a key part in what happens. And it will be a key test for Donald Trump and whether he can hang on to the presidency. Alan Finlayson, do you think it's still a done deal for him? It was looking quite good earlier this year, wasn't it? Trump to win? No, I don't think it's that way. Certainly at the moment it looks like he's trailing in the polls and crucially trailing in the polls in the states that matter. So if you were a betting person, you would probably bet on Trump losing. But there's still quite a few weeks to go. It's a very tense situation. And clearly Trump is going to push issues of law and order of the security of people in the big cities or what he continues to call the liberal Democrat cities to try and make people fearful of what might happen if Biden was to come to power. So I I think it's going to be a long, hot summer and a dirty, dirty fight. So our guest today, Dr. Michael Fraser, lecturer in political and social theory, and Dr. Emma Long, senior lecturer in American studies. Michael Fraser, do you think he stands a good chance of keeping his job come November? Well, uh, I think we need to distinguish two separate questions here. There's the question of would Trump win in a free and fair election? And there's the question of will there be a free and fair election? Uh, and, and I think with uh, the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter protests uh, serving as an excuse, uh, Trump has made clear that he's willing to send in federal agents to do all sorts of illegal things. Uh, he's made clear that he considers uh, mail-in ballots illegitimate, uh, that they're a source of fraud. Uh, interestingly, this year, uh, an agreement uh, between the Democratic and Republican parties, a legally binding agreement expired, which limited uh, the number of people who can um, who could stand outside polling places, who have the right to stand outside polling places, uh, visibly armed, um, and you know whether they're federal agents or uh, Republican Party volunteers. I think we're going to see a lot of voter intimidation. Uh, there's a possibility that the post office will be defunded um, rather than the police, as the protesters are demanding. There may be a crisis in, in the postal ballots. So I think the poll numbers as they are right now suggest that Trump winning in a free and fair election is very low. But I think the chance of there truly being a free and fair election is very much in question. So, Emma Long, you're a, um, a specialist in the U.S. Supreme Court, and we could end up seeing the Supreme Court playing quite a key role in this, couldn't we? Uh, we could. And um, I mean, there's some time before the election. But just to comment on Michael's point to, to add to that um, in a, an issue that the court's been involved with on the periphery rather than than in anything that's hit the headlines. Um, a lot of states are being uh, are very reluctant to expand the number of uh posting ballots or ballots by mail for for people. Um, COVID-19 and various local shutdowns means that a lot of polling places are are closed or um, have limited numbers. Um, The court has largely refused to intervene in um, challenges to those. So those restrictions are still standing and those things are going to make it 
even more difficult. I mean, it's it's not necessarily a party political issue, but it does mean that um, it's going to be harder for a lot of people to get out and vote, especially those who are uh, perhaps or feel more vulnerable to um, contracting COVID-19, which as all the statistics have, have showed, tend to be people in lower socioeconomic incomes and um, people from racial minorities who traditionally in the US have tended to vote Democrat. So there's that side of, of things as well. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the court potentially has a, a role. If you remember in um, 2016, a big part of the Republican campaign that, that Trump sort of got on, on board with when he became the, the nominee was the question of um, nominees to the Supreme Court. There was a, well, there was a vacancy on the court. Uh, President Obama had nominated Merrick Garland uh, and the Republicans in the, the Senate were refusing to, to hold hearings on the, their argument being that the next president should be able to appoint somebody who holds a lifetime appointment um, and that paid off for them the court became a big discussion part of, of, of Trump's speeches and of the discussion that was um, was going on um, this year at the moment the court is not quite such a major part of the, the debate, but some recent decisions have raised some questions about the, the impact of, of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, Trump's two appointments. Um, and if this comes down to a contested election, thinking about uh, Michael's point there about the question of a free and fair election, if this comes down to contested questions, whether it's a close ballot or for some other reason, then the court, as we saw in 2000 in the, the battle between George W. Bush and, and Al Gore, um, may have a role in, in ultimately deciding the outcome. And I suppose that's why it really matters to people, isn't it? Because we might sort of sit here, if you're listening to this in, in the UK, you might think, well, actually... How much does US politics really matter to me? And do I really care about the Supreme Court and what they're doing? But actually, when you look at the Supreme Court making a fundamental decision in 2000, which decided whether we had George W. Bush or whether we had Al Gore, I guess, Alan, all sorts of things might not have happened or might have happened differently if that election, if that decision by the Supreme Court had gone the other way. That's a fantastic counterfactual, isn't it? If Al Gore had been president, <laughs> would the response to 9-11 have been different? Would we have had not the same kinds of conflicts in the Middle East? Would we have had different approaches to environmental policy and so forth? Would we have not had the kind of backlash that seems to have shaped some of the upheaval in contemporary American politics? That's a good question. But actually, with thinking about that, though, I want to ask our, our two experts something. You know, when you're, when you're discussing this and saying, is there going to be a free and fair election in America? On one hand, that that blows my mind, right? How, how can this be that we're questioning the stability and security of democracy in America? But actually, how unprecedented and weird is this situation really? Because we're talking about, we're going back to 2000, contested election courts making decisions. If we go back, there was long controversy in Bill Clinton's presidency, impeachment trials and so forth. Go back to the 70s, Nixon, Watergate. I mean, actually, is this really a weird situation for America or is this kind of America having kind of crazy, intense, divided politics like it always has? Well, I, I, I think really what we're talking about is uh, the reinstitution of uh, anti-democratic elements in American politics that we thought went away, uh, we foolishly thought went away, like so, we thought so many injustices went away due to the Civil Rights Movement uh, and the Voting Rights Act uh, and, and uh, the enfranchisement of African Americans in the 1960s, right? So 
the Supreme Court plays a very important role here in that uh, the uh, key provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 are no longer being enforced. Although the Constitution guaranteed African Americans the right to vote, states had all sorts of creative ways of disenfranchising them. The state of Florida, by referendum, so in a, in a popular vote, decided to return voting rights to convicted felons, of whom there are over a million uh, in the state of Florida. And we're talking a state that, that George Bush, quote unquote, won by a few hundred votes. And there are a million convicted felons. And it was thought that this, this would make a significant difference and it would re-enfranchise large numbers of, of African-Americans and, and Latinx Americans in Florida. Uh, but what the uh, Republican controlled state legislature and governor did was they said, you have to repay uh, all fines and fees. And Florida has a Baroque uh, collection of court fees that defendants are required to pay. You need to repay all these fees before you can get the right to vote that the referendum returned to you. Uh, and a lower court ruled that this was an illegal poll tax, that it violated the referendum that passed and was legally binding. And Trump appointed federal judges uh, upheld the the law overturned the lower court ruling and the Supreme Court declined to hear the case. So that literally disenfranchised, maybe not, you know, people are trying to raise money to help people pay off these fees, but that decision alone could make the difference uh, if the election goes remotely like it did in 2000 or 2016. <laughs> It, it seems, I suppose, to me anyway, as a as a as a British person following British politics mostly, it seems a bizarre situation where you have all of these states making different policies about how elections are run and how polling is done and and everything. Whereas here we would have a centralised system where everyone over a certain age gets a vote and you're allowed to do it in the same way no matter where you live. It's, it's it seems like quite a bizarre system. But only, I mean, I think only to to us because we're used to that central system. I mean, the US we talk about the US as a democracy and it, it's a democratic system but it was set up as a democratic republic the foundation of the united states was the states in the first instance and the central government came from from them if you read the constitution and the way it's it's set up you know it is a delegation of power by the states to the central government for the central government to do the things that states could not do by themselves. So kind of collective action, collective security, um, uh, trade and economics at a, a national level rather than between the, the, the states themselves. So a lot of power resides in the states, much more power in the US than in, in the UK with counties, for example, because they were at least the original 13 anyway, independent entities before the United States existed. And so, and that, that you know, that, that's been a, a really important um, sense throughout American history of state identity as well as um, national identity. And it's, it's enshrined in all kinds of different laws. Um, we're more familiar, I think, with the, the federal government, the central government, because it's gradually been increasing in power at least since the 1930s and Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and then World War II and then the Cold War, you know, during times of conflict, um, power sort of flows to the centre and it's never really flowed back. But um, states are really important 
players in in this and you know that that does lead to, to these differences whether it's differences in in voting laws um that we're, we're talking about at the, the moment different responses to um how to respond to police forces for example in the the wake of, of black lives matter protests you, know, you hear a lot about discussions about defunding the police and different states are responding to that in in different ways at the moment so it, it is fundamentally written into the the american system even though we don't necessarily see it because we tend to focus on the the national government is that going to be part of the issue in the election because we've seen trump as part of his presidency put federal forces into states to interfere with the way they're policing some of the protests. Is that going to be an issue in the election, this balance between state and federal power? Or is that, are there other things going to be driving the issue more? The issue with this sort of thing is how many people actually care about the principle and how many people adopt these principles out of convenience when it supports them, right? So in the Civil War, throughout the Civil Rights Movement, the mantra was states' rights uh, because that was a principle deeply embedded in American history, culture, and constitutional law. Uh, it was, of course, you know, states' rights first to enslave people and then states' rights to uh, have uh, segregatory and, and discriminatory laws, but it was framed and defended in terms of states' rights. Then the question is, when you have, you know, progressive states like Oregon, uh, that don't want federal officials, um, federal agents, uh, enforcing federal policies that they disagree with. You know, the last time we saw this sort of thing, uh, people on the left would think, oh, well, the federal government represents what's good. They're going in, they're sending in uh, federal agents to desegregate the schools, to desegregate the buses, to desegregate the restaurants. Um, now what we have are federal agents being sent in to use uh, violent dispersal techniques against nonviolent protesters. Uh, and, and that's what was going on in the streets of Portland last night where they, they actually uh, tear gassed the mayor. Uh, Alan and I were discussing Hamilton the other day. This is the great debate between Hamilton and Jefferson in the rap battle, right? How powerful will the federal government be and how powerful will the states be? Can you sing a bit for us? Uh, I could rap, maybe. Uh, <laughs> you see, the secret that, that I always have to admit is that I was friends with Lin-Manuel Miranda in high school. So uh, so I feel I have insight into, into Hamilton. You know, what those rap battles were about were Jefferson defending the states and a weak federal government and Hamilton defending a strong federal government. Exactly the debate that's going on in the EU right now. Uh, you know, so Italy uh, wants the EU to take on its debts. New York wanted the federal government after the revolution to take on its debts. And that's the debate in American politics ever since is that Hamilton-Jefferson rap battle. Uh, so I think the evidence in public opinion polling is very few people are committed to principles like states' rights or federal power. It's just when the feds were on the side of desegregation, the racists were in favor of states' rights. And when the feds are on the side of violence against peaceful protesters, then the peaceful protesters suddenly discover the importance of states' rights. And it's all a very opportunistic thing. Sure. I mean, that, that sort of fits right into to my own, like the way in which those the meanings of those terms change over history. And, you know, the, the idea of how states' rights becomes um, kind of tied into to, um, 
sort of dog whistle politics and, and ideas of um, sort of racial discrimination and becomes a, a kind of a, a term to talk about race uh, without talking about race, right? So there are those, but I think that there's also a kind of practical element here oh. thinking uh, thinking about federalism as opposed to states rights if, if we think of states rights as as a loaded term for many of the reasons that michael's pointing out and its historical association both with um the attempt to retain slavery and then to um and then the, the jim crow segregation era uh, if you talk about federalism at a, at a practical level thinking about its impact on the the election you don't have to look much further than the electoral college which is you know, elects the, the president, which is kind of weirdly federalism in action, right? The, you know, in the people, the, the American population only indirectly elect the president. We saw this in the 2016 election, right? Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but lost in the electoral college. So there is a, you know, within the American system, there is a kind of practical, and thinking about the ahead to the election, there's a practical element to this, this federalism that potentially could play out again because the way the electoral college works in terms of electing the, the president means that certain states become key states. And it may be that the way in which Trump um, portrays this sending in in federal troops, we've begun to, to see this, right? The talk of law and order that has echoes of, um, echoes of, of Nixon of a, an earlier era he's trying to frame the debate in a particular way um, I think probably with a, a name to, to influence some of these or try and influence enough people in these swing states to swing the electoral college his his way can I ask you a question about about that I've read that some Democrats are advocating increasing the number of states in order to deal with this problem of the Electoral College, to let Puerto Rico in or um, American Samoa. Is that a thing that might actually happen? Is that, is that a pie in the sky stuff they're just saying? Or is that actually something that might happen? And isn't that something that might think, make people think, oh, this is a way in which they're trying to rig the system? Could be. I mean, with, with deep cynicism, I think everybody's trying to rig the system. Right? <laughs> um, I don't see it happening simply because these questions have been on the American political agenda for a really long time. Um, if you've ever spent any time in Washington, D.C., for example, that has been a campaign for Washington, D.C. statehood since at least the 1970s, because although the federal government is based there, it's not classed as a state. It doesn't get um, it doesn't get a vote in the Electoral College. Uh, it doesn't have a, a say it doesn't have the same kind of control that um, states do over certain areas okay it's what three miles square so it, it's significantly smaller than most states but there's been a campaign for that for, for years and years it, and it, it's years population years. though is significantly greater than many states yeah, that's and that's, true. Yeah, it has a big and, and that's the and the republicans at this point are not representing people so much as land I, I'm not as skeptical about this as Emma is, because if the Democrats were to have, and if there's a real landslide here, that's possible, effective control for a moment over the Senate, which is very hard for Democrats to do, if they were to get the presidency as well and control um, uh, the House, the Senate, and the presidency, then I think the only effective way they could ever counterbalance this this Republican advantage uh, of land versus people would be to admit more states to the union. But there, I mean, there is, as you said, there's a big if there, right? Which is the Democrats need to 
to get power. And I suppose I'm skeptical partly because of the, the DC debate has been going on for so long at times when Democrats have had power for various reasons, they've not been able to do it. As to be honest, is the debate about the status of Puerto Rico. I mean, the battle between the land, urban and rural areas, I mean, takes us back to Hamilton and Jefferson, right? Again, yeah, <laughs> talking yeah. about those, those links, you know, Jefferson is the, the claiming to speak on behalf of American farmers and, and Hamilton in terms of, of urban areas. But I think you also touch on that really important issue of gerrymandering, right, which just becomes so fundamental. And I think a lot of people turn off when you start talking about gerrymandering <laughs> um, because it doesn't seem particularly exciting, you know, when you can potentially talk, when you can talk about other issues, but it's absolutely fundamental to, to think about the way that these elections have, have gone. And of course, last summer the supreme court basically said we're not going to get involved in questions of political gerrymandering right you know they, they have historically got involved when they've tried to to shape electoral districts to um to limit the power of um racial minorities in voting and there uh, russo versus richo versus common cause last year uh was a question about does the same apply if political majorities then when they have the power to redraw voting lines can basically favor their own party and the supreme court said no not not our issue they didn't say it was necessarily a good thing if you read the, the opinion but they basically said it's not an issue that the courts can get involved in it's a political issue and it's not our jurisdiction um i think the legal argument is important to to note but the practical consequences of, of that means that actually this is only going to get worse and because the republicans at state level have been successful even through the obama era so when that when there was sort of success democratic success at national level republicans were becoming even more entrenched at state level in terms of governors and and state legislatures who are the ones who draw these electoral boundaries um it's just you know creating great you know it makes it much harder for democrats to be successful at a, a national uh, level i i think a, a good way to explain the importance of this to, to British people is essentially in the United States you have a system where instead of voters picking their representatives, representatives pick their voters. Um, and it, 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 that means, and the, 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 the representatives pick their voters once every 10 years after the census. And that means this upcoming election is even more important than just the question of whether or not Trump remains in office, because it's a census year. It's and whoever controls the state legislatures uh, in, uh, after the census will draw the districts both for the next state legislature, so for themselves, and for the House of Representatives. And gerrymandering has become such a science that you can, as in the example of Wisconsin, you can take a state that's overwhelmingly democratic in terms of population, again, the fact that Democrats cluster in the college towns and the big cities really makes this much, much easier. So the combination of the increasing ability of data scientists to, to carry out the gerrymandering really as an advanced science to essentially get whatever sort of legislature you want on the state level and get whatever sort of House delegation you want on the, on the House level. And how does the, the debate over the mail-in ballots affect? Because I know Trump's been very critical of, of, of mail-in ballots um, in some states. And, and yet, for, I guess during COVID, that's probably going to be the only way that some people can vote. Right. So he may be shooting himself in the foot in that regard. 
uh, because generally speaking, low voter turnout, widespread disenfranchisement helps Republicans because the people who are less likely to vote if voting is difficult and time consuming are people who already have difficult lives with a lot of their time consumed being uh, being consumed in other ways. Uh, so they tend to be poorer people and people of color. But those old patterns of low turnout helps Republicans might not hold when it's the elderly who are scared to go outside. And those are precisely the people who are traditional Trump supporters. So this may have been a strategic mistake on their part. That said, the coronavirus has been handled so poorly that Trump is losing support among the over 65s because they're on a, you know, they support candidates who have a don't kill me platform. Trump's core base of support is now, interestingly, 50 to 65 instead of 50 and older. We've gotten into some of the details here and it's all kind of filled out where we started, which was this kind of the, the, the sense that lots of things are really a little bit wobbly in American democratic practice. I, I, I would go um, a, a little bit more than a little bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and we, we can add, I mean, Trump has added to that, right? Since the, right since the 2016 campaign, you know, one of the, weirdly, and one of the, the reasons why he was so successful um, in, in campaigning as an outsider was because he wasn't playing by the rules of the game. And one of the ways yep. he wasn't playing by the rules of the game was by attacking those rules and those key institutions. So, you know, attacking the legitimacy of mail-in ballots fits in with a whole range of things that he, he's done, including things like attacking judges, right, as being political judges, as attacking, con you know, the, the congressional impeachment hearings as being uh, a, about a political attack. And, and those kinds of things, those attacks um, on the institutions um, are, of, of government are very much a characteristic of the way Trump has both campaigned and governed. The, the picture you're painting is that whatever happens in November, whoever wins, everybody's going to be really unhappy and everyone's going to contest what happened. If it's Biden, there's going to be heavy contestation from the Republican and Trump side. If it's Trump, there's going to be a lot of contestation and on the other side. Do you see this election as, as ending anything other than kind of intense conflict, even, even violence of some kind? I mean, can this be an election that people accept the result of and we can move on? Or is, is this really a case where whatever happens, there's going to be intense anger and upset on one side? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of these issues are not new debates, right? These questions about legitimacy and voting rights and access to voting and, you know, the, the processes and the, the systems, they're not new, generally. They, they, they have been heightened, that is certainly true. Um, I think it's going to depend, I think, in many ways as to how close it, it comes. If you've got an election that's as close as the, the 2016 was, then I think you're, 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 you're going to see some, some fights, particularly in terms of the popular vote. Um, if it's like 2000, then certainly so. If there is a, a reasonably heavy majority one way or, or the other, I think that becomes, there'll be a lot of disgruntled people, um, but probably less likely. Yeah, I, I think there is no guarantee that the losing side will accept the legitimacy of the election. Uh, I think the odds of the losing side accepting the legitimacy of the election go up the more lopsided the election is. So this is a case that whatever the formal written constitution may say, 
the popular vote actually will matter. You know, so so normally the places where I've been able to vote in the United States, like New York and Massachusetts, in a presidential election, you think your vote doesn't matter at all because those are going to go to the Democrat no matter what. And when a state goes one way or the other, how much it goes doesn't matter. The overall popular vote doesn't matter, as we saw in 2016. Whereas now, I think, an overwhelming popular and electoral college uh, result will have a legitimacy that anything that's less than overwhelming won't. And I think the danger of significant violence which is, you know, how Americans generally deal with their feelings is with violence. The more, the closer things are, the more likely violence will be, and that's why I'm so grateful to uh, be in the surprisingly less hostile environment of being an immigrant in in Norwich right now. What you gain in in musicals, you lose in political instability in America. But right, but no luckily Hamilton's on Disney Plus, yeah. so I didn't have to be in New York to see it anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Michael Fraser and Dr. Emma Long. Our next podcast, which will hopefully be out in September, will address the issue of the Black Lives Matter protests in much more detail with the author Tessa McWatt and Anshu Mondal, who writes about post-colonial matters. Keep an eye out for that one. As always, hat tip to Sky, BBC and CNN for our news clips. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share us on social and there's more analysis on our website, ueapolitics.org. We didn't get to hear you rap anything. So everyone in my extremely dorky high school was writing musicals about history. Uh, it's a it's a practice we all engage in. Mine was sung rather than rapped. I wrote a wrote a uh, for a school project wrote a history of World War II set to Beatles tunes. <laughs> songs like Stalingrad. Though I had twice the troops that Stalin had, <laughs> what happened there made Stalin glad. Oh, things went bad. And Stalin. <laughs> Suddenly, my army's half the size it used to be. Whatever happened to neutrality? Oh, Stalingrad went horribly. Why it had to snow, I don't know. All hope was gone. When I didn't learn a thing from Napoleon. Stalingrad, you know. Brilliant.